You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. I'm here with George. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Okay. George Ure. I publish a a crazy website called urbansurvival.com, which is all free, and a website called peoplenomics.com, which is uh, a whole 40 bucks a year. Uh, and that website is really focused more on long wave economics, which is my main focus of life, and trying to outguess where the market is going. Then, in addition to that, uh, I have a project called nostracodus.com, as in computer code and Nostradamus, all wrapped up into one. <laughs> and that is <laughs> that is at nostracodus.com. And let's see what else do I do. I just finished writing a novel, but has nothing to do with data, so let's stay on point. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's what I do. Uh, wild so, man live on a live on a ranch in uh, East Texas. Okay, semi retired, uh, fly an old airplane around, go on cruises, and enjoy life. Nice. So, George, yeah. l- let me share some context. Is um, basically, I'm sitting there watching the History Network. And I'm listening to someone discuss about, I guess, forecasting and prediction and how it is applied to the stock market. Then I hear about WebBot, which piques my interest. And then I heard of your involvement in the founding of WebBot. Maybe we could jump in from that point and then try to develop the conversation from there. Sure. Um The background, very briefly, is a former colleague of mine, uh, a software programming type, evolved a way of scanning the internet, looking for contexts out of everyday language by sending spiders out to survey large portions of the internet. And uh, we collaborated on some aspects of it and... uh, uh, that collaboration terminated, oh gosh, 2011, 2012. And since then, I've been pursuing a different avenue mm-hmm. because, because that approach was not getting where I wanted to go, which was tradable information on markets. Uh, your background, um, Peter, is, is quantitative. Right. And and, and the problem is when somebody approaches the markets from a, um, a soft uh, standpoint, in other words, Jungian archetypes and sorting out linguistics, that becomes very dicey. Uh, there are a number of issues there, uh, starting with regionalisms and how people use speech and so forth. And, and I decided to, to step back from that whole process a long ways and rethink the problem. So I had two, I had two key insights. Uh, the first key insight was no one is really uh, offering what I would call a global aggregate index. And so I developed one, and that's really been the core of the peoplenomics.com 
uh, work, other than the long wave economics, which that that's been remarkable also. But the the main focus of the aggregate index uh, has been the the realization that all markets in the world operate. Uh, interdependently, because let's face it, every every market trades on every other market. Uh, if China goes down, Europe follows, the U.S. follows less, and there's something of a dampening effect. But in terms of if you look at the market at the end of each week, based on where we are in credit cycles and all the rest of it, uh, you begin to see that there's... Uh, if I can describe it as the the global market picture, and when you start identifying trends in that, <clears throat> it it changes dramatically how you look at domestic markets in the U.S. and and so it's it's sort of like layers of an onion, with the the global market being the outer layer, and then whatever the next layer down in the onion is depends on where the clock is. So in other words, uh, when uh, the Asian markets are open uh, overnight for the U.S., they're at the top of the onion. And and then the next markets that open would be Middle East, uh, and then the next markets, Europe, and then U.S., and so forth. And so there's a succession of these layers of the onion. And, and the only really effective way to capture what the onion is up to at the top level is I, I developed a summation of key indices around the world, uh, a couple in each time zone. And when tracked over time, that becomes an incredibly interesting indicator of where, and, and you understand Elliott Wave Theory, I, I read your bio. <laughs> and, and so when you, when you look at the global market, a lot of what seem to be variances from Elliott Wave start falling into place because they all operate uh, under a single uh, unified and and I and I dare say limited amount of money that's in circulation around the world, and and so you you can see kind of a global advance and a global decline, and right now uh, we're seeing a global decline, and so the other markets are working their way through it. Uh, the the press has put a huge amount of emphasis on the decline in the Shanghai, the SSE, and uh, to an extent, I think that's a little overblown because when you look at indicators in other markets, uh, the SSE on a market cap basis is probably what? Uh, Nine percent, eight percent of global market cap, something like that. Mm. Uh, and 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 so when you begin to uh, rethink how you look at markets, you you begin to uh, get a whole different picture of investment, both in terms of of uh, cycle counts, uh, in terms uh, of where directionals are going, uh, even such simple things as. Uh, Price trend channels. You know the the. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I have another index uh, underneath the global index, which is called the U.S. aggregate, and I I invented that one or pulled it together. Once they invented, um, but I developed that one because the 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 main problem 
with analysis of the U.S. market is it's very lopsided because when we had the major decline from 2000 to 2003, uh, most brokers, you're kind of an exceptional guy, but most brokers stopped talking about the tech sector. And so the Dow was simply the headline number. Uh, and so that's how the average American sort of viewed the market. And then there was the S&P. So, yeah, if you wanted a broader view, you'd look at the S&P. And yet, uh, depending on whose account you read, uh, everyone just stopped talking about five to eight trillion that blew up uh, when the tech wreck happened. And and so what I did is I said, okay, how how are we gonna how are we gonna really get a different look at that? Uh, and the way we the way we get a different look at that uh, is we we step back and we say, okay, let's say that we were geniuses and put a thousand bucks into the Dow and a thousand bucks into the S and P and a thousand bucks into the Nasdaq Composite on the first of January in 1999 or pick any date you want, but before the actual market peak. Well, you'll see very clearly then when the market peak occurred, and then you'll see the rundown in 2003, the major rally as the credit bubble came along with the no-doc loans and you know all that happy horse crap, and then we blew it up in 2009, and now we're just, we may be concluding a third major wave up uh, from the 2009 low, from which we will either stay above 1740 on the S&P roughly, uh, and go on higher, like we did in 2028 20, through 29, when the Fed began slowly raising rates, um, or we'll crash on down through 1740, and we'll really begin, you know, the major collapse everybody worries about. Um, so. I, I developed this, and the aggregate view of the U.S. markets is distinctively different than the headline numbers. Uh, using a simple oscillator on this aggregate index um, and, and using an averaging approach, uh, I came up with something I call the, the uh, PeopleNomics Oscillator, and it successfully said, uh, I think it was the third of the week ending the 3rd of July, it is time to blow out of this market and go to cash or get short. Well, that wasn't a genius call, but nobody else was writing about it at the time, and right. so here we are, here we are, you know, uh, 150, 200 S&P points lower, and the indicator is hinting that we're going to go down to 1820, which we already spiked down to that once, but we'll have a weekly, likely weekly close in that vicinity or down as low as 1740, and then we get into that whatever the Fed does on the 16th of 15th or 16th uh, of September. So, so that's that's how the original webbot was uh, Cliff High's work. That was all linguistics. Right. Uh, and, and my work then uh, be became a little different. So that was first I, I, I radically changed how I was looking at the numbers. And then the second thing that happened was I decided, okay, uh, how do we get greater specificity with regard to a particular uh, stock? And so out of that project was born yet another, uh, a fellow I know up in Canada who's a, a really bright 
visual Fox Pro guy. I know it's gone away, and we should all be using SQL. But in terms of easy, cheap, and having the right hooks into older versions of Microsoft Explorer, which have some unique features for phishing the web, you, in, in terms of getting VBA hooks in, you, you can easily put together a system which lets you troll a whole bunch of websites. And when you find a website of interest, then you can follow links from that website to elsewhere. And so we built this system called Nostracotus, and we're, we're grading right now is coding version 2. And the idea there is, wouldn't it be nice if you could put in your list of financial websites, push a button when you go to bed, and wake up and have a data cube that you can look through uh, and take a stock, uh, Standard Oil or Walmart or, you know, whatever your, your favorite pick is, and then be able to look at day-to-day shift in word frequencies, nouns, verbs, adjectives, used to describe that stock. And, and once you have that kind of resolution, which is what we're working on now, uh, then if you take that with the onion approach, as well as linguistics, linguistics in the sense of word frequency analysis, which is real quick and easy for any database. I mean, they, they'd love to add up and give subtotals, right? And and so, and so and then you can throw up charts, graphs, whatever. It, the idea where this, I hope, goes, and my next airplane depends on it, will be that we will have a very good sense of the directional indicator by using an average based on an aggregate of not just a single index. You know, it's, it's kind of easy to manipulate the Dow. I, I, I don't mean to sound, you know, crass about it, but it is only 30 stocks. And so if somebody came in one day and bought a whole bunch of puts across the board, that could impact how the Dow looks. On the other hand, if somebody bought a whole bunch of calls, they could arb it up, especially, you know, depending on what months they do and so forth. And, and so after a while, you start developing this kind of jaundiced look at narrow indices like the Dow. I got a lot more respect for the S&P 500, but uh, the, uh, the thing that, that I found was that when you see an index like the NASDAQ 100 uh, seriously underperforming the, uh, the Dow and the S&P uh, percentage-wise, you can make some huge gains. I'll explain. Uh, 2013, this time roughly in 2013, I ran the numbers out uh, earlier this week. Uh, if you looked at the Dow uh, between 2013 and now, you'd be up about 7.8% plus or minus a stick of chewing gum. Uh, if you had invested the same money in uh, the S&P 500, uh, while the Dow was up 7.8, the S&P would be up about 17.5%. But the laggard in the aggregate was our dear old friend, the NASDAQ 100. And the NASDAQ 100, if you'd put the money in in 2013, 
you would have seen about a 34.5% return. And that's before we do any leveraging or, you know, get fancy with it and used, uh, you know, use like an ETF, a levered ETF bull product or bear product, something like that. So, so there are lots of cool ways to use this. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's a novel approach uh, to looking at markets that uh, I'm sure I'm sure at some point um, you know the style will go out of high frequency trading yeah I mean high frequency trading makes a lot of money uh, but this is something that you know if if you have a new and different way of looking at a market uh, you've got a chance against HFT because that's you know trading on nanoseconds and this is much more you know I'm I'm probably at this point looking at doing three or four uh, trades per year, if that, because the big moves in the market, which, by the way, is where the big money is, uh, those things don't happen overnight. Usually, there are exceptions. Did I did I talk too much? <laughs> yes, you did. I wanted actually to see how much you could go without taking a pause. So I think you oh, said yeah, the new I'd record. Oh yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was a great question, and and it's a complicated answer. And 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 as all quant guys know, the right answers are never the simple answers. So, so George, let's um, take it a few steps back here. So we sure. now understand about the history of um, Webbot. And now we understand about the evolution of aggregate indices in regards to global and the United States. And then right. uh, probably, uh, I guess, a new iteration of capturing, I guess, social and linguistic information about equities and being able to understand that uh, to some extent. So there's a lot of ground we want to cover here with um, relatively limited time. So I guess here's the question is, first and foremost, in regards to the two indices, is what parameters are you looking at? I understand that we're looking at, I guess, um, big markets that represent a lot of market capitalization relative to, um, I guess, global um, market cap as, as a whole. So besides from that and besides from the, I guess, changes in price and um, I guess the volatility impact of that, what are the indicators um, that you're looking at in terms of these indices? Um, short, If you can explain that short and succinct, um, that would be great too. Okay. Uh, I, I won't tell you which markets I use. Sure. But I will give you an example. Okay. Uh, let, let's say you, you wanted a real simple way to look at the global market. I would, I would say let's take the, uh, the Hang Seng and the Nikkei. Okay. Okay. And then let's say we wanted to represent Europe. Uh, let's say we used the, uh, the FTSE and the DAX. Okay. And you wanted to use the U.S. Uh, the broadest single index in the U.S. would be the S and P. Yes, S and P. So we we would we would take those. Right. And 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 where we begin doing our analysis, whatever that date is, uh, and and let's say it's first uh, of January of '99, we then simply look at the weekly close of the uh, of the total. Of those indices, okay, and we and we weight that total. So, in other words, they're equally weighted. Uh, okay, uh, 
1,000 uh, uh, on the S&P uh, translates to what uh, 200 on the Hang Seng times five. Okay. So you you build you build your starting multipliers so all the players kind of weigh the same, and then you simply do that week after week after week, and you take the total number of of uh, uh, whatever your your total is of those uh, when we have eight, uh, seven markets um, or or six or whatever, and, yes. and you and you divide whatever the total of that adjusted index is, a dollar adjusted index. Okay. Uh, and and you divide that by the total number of markets, and it gives you that week's average. Then as you pull that down over time copy two cells below, as you fill in subsequent weekly closes, you then develop a very good picture of what the uh, total global stock market looks like. And, okay. and, 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 and the reason that you do that initial adjustment, uh, it's the same reason that that the the U.S. global, uh, or I'm sorry, the U.S. aggregate was developed because because uh, y- you can't just not count a market because you don't like it. Um, and if you were a hedge fund and you wanted a global market, you'd put a, a thousand bucks into the U.S. You'd put a thousand in the Nikkei. You'd put a thousand in Hang Seng, uh, or you, you might want to adjust it later after you start seeing trends. But at least initially, to see how all these markets compare, you take whatever your local currency is and you say, okay, buy x number of yen across the board in all of these or x number of dollars in all of these and and then you can really see a, a character of this global advance and now global decline so george what is the merit of the weekly close why that time frame and that close as opposed to uh, daily closes or uh, monthly closes or quarterly closes Oh, I'm, I'm just I'm I'm just lazy for my own account. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. But but there but there is a technical reason, and the and the technical reason, the technical reason, Peter, is that you have a lot of what I call hot money, day trade money, okay. overnight money. You you'll you'll see on Mondays, uh, you know, depending on what the broker loan call rates are and blah blah blah, uh, and the day traders and the you know if a corporation's trying to shove some money around, those kind of things can influence intraday how that index goes. It's a little bit noisy, but it's much less noisy if you just take the week ending, and then you pretty clearly can see how the uh, how the close smooths out and becomes a mm, my that's an interesting curve i think i sent you a copy of it by the way right right in I should, emails. Uh, by the way i should send you a copy of my book which um covers oh, a lot you gotta autograph it you'll be very interested in what we're doing actually um we should definitely discuss about this offline when we get a chance. But yeah, going back to this because, public conversation, see, there's there's another interesting little side issue, and I got I have to read your high low close work because okay. I'm a I was a huge fan of Joe Granville's on balance volume work. I've got I think everything Granville wrote. Uh, okay. The problem with on balance volume is that blew up as a, as a strategy for the little guy when the high frequency trading and the program trading 
came along and, and swelled the volume up. So you don't know what's real volume versus what's machine volume. And right. machine machine volume is not tradable in the same manner. It's not the same decision-making process as the real investor. Yeah, I, I think in terms of um, the open, high, low, close analysis that I do is more about just extracting the data to formulate, um, you know, understanding of probabilities and statistics. And as far as volume is concerned, if I'm ever looking at that, I'm thinking about the total aggregate delta between the bids and the ask and if there's any merit to that. And obviously, like you indicated, the longer to time frame, the more substantial of a move that you can get. Yes, I understand that there's going to be derivatives. There's going to be many different markets involved. So it's going to be tricky to even get an understanding on what the delta is. But, you know, a reference point might be of, of some value. Um Oh, it's of to, a lot to some of extent. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I always look at it, though, um, back to uh, Peter Drucker uh, days, uh, management by objective. I'm 66, and I'm very young, by happily the way. retired. Okay. <laughs> and the idea of daily and hourly and by the minute and, and looking at, at live deltas on my trading screen all day, no, I'd like to play with my ham radio set, play golf fly the airplane, go on cruises. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. I think that, um, as you indicated, the bigger moves are, are the ones that are going to be much more lucrative. And I think what one can use the shorter time frames for is to test their thesis and to then try to actually apply that on much longer time frames, which actually becomes less stressful, depending on the person, right? There's many different yeah, kinds yeah. of personalities. For me, I prefer to play like a longer term trust game or like try to capture swing trades as opposed to um, you know, daily trades. So the biggest position that I've had um, that I've taken goes all the way back to August of 2014, which is a big position in the U.S. dollar. And very I, rarely am I selling out of that position, um, even up to today. So that's yeah, that, that's yeah, kind that's of brilliant. a and, and 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 in my work, and this goes over to my long wave economics background. You know, I simply looked at the number of U.S. dollars what a U.S. dollar would buy in um, 1913, and I look at what the dollar buys today, which is about 4.4 cents, and I regress that back, and I figure, oh, well, hey, look, the books are, uh, the the purchasing power on average is being decimated by about 3.5% per year, and so what are some of the best hedges there are? So, not having a lot of money, I decided in 2000. Three uh, to buy all the physical gold I could when it was 273 an ounce. Needless okay. to say, that worked out okay. And the $7 silver worked out okay. And the rural agricultural land between Dallas and Houston seems to be doing okay. And, and, and so really, it, 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 uh, you're right. It's a matter of what your objective is. And you're a professional and you're a young guy. And I got a lot of respect for your work. I got to tell you. Uh, uh, my objectives are different. Um, I like the thought problem as much as I like the money that falls out of solving it. Right, right. Actually, that's one of the key purposes of this conversation, actually. I, I Believe it or not, rather than talking about index construction, I was more... Mm-hmm 
probably um, drawn to this conversation based on the fact that you're looking at components of linguistics. And I actually wanted to get into a very psychological conversation with you about if um, linguistics forecasts and leads thoughts, for example. And, And I remember going back into psychology class, understanding that that might not necessarily be the case, depending on what school of thought you Um, see yourself fitting with in terms of um, psychology. So I also wanted to discuss with you about if one could actually gain your, I guess, capturing of what's being spoken in terms of like the internet and the lexicon of various different equities that you're one's trying to analyze. I'll give you an example where we've just started doing a lot of contri- contribution in terms of Forbes on CNN, on Bloomberg. What if Peter Pham says a Microsoft is a short and Microsoft is bad? So suddenly we've got some big words here, right? Short and bad. If I was to say that and I'm conveying that to a very large audience using mass media distribution, am I able to game any kind of linguistic analysis um, based on what you guys are trying to do? Yes, but here's here's what ends up happening, uh, and, 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 and it becomes a, a huge, ugly, multivariate problem. Because, and and, and here's, here are some of the parameters of it. Uh, let's take, uh, there was a story, in fact, it's still making the rounds. I've seen headlines lately about central banks losing control of the economy globally. Well, I thought, isn't that an interesting notion? So, Sikkim software. And so it turns out that I was able to go back and trace uh, to an article in 2012 where a relatively obscure uh, article was written on a financial website hypothecating what would happen if the central banks lost control. And, And what happened was the phrase central banks lost control or losing control central banks in control if you just search that you can you can you can see how the little idea like let's say it was picked up and forbes is not forbes is not the right place to start with let's say i wrote something on my website you know, nobody reads urban survey. I mean, it, it's small. It really is small. Uh, and and that's one of the beauties of it, by the way. It's small. So if it were then picked up by Peter Pham, then it would get maybe on to Forbes. And once it's in Forbes, uh, Barron's and the Wall Street Journal are going to Me Too on it. And right. then along comes Fox Business News, CNBC, yada, 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 and they're going to meet too on it. <clears throat> and, the, and the next thing you know, uh, I'm going to get back in and say, oh, well, I must have been right about that because I said central banks are losing control. And once again, the loop begins. So we have these, these looping linguistic tracks that go around. Uh, and, and they take some time because um, usually, and, and you see this a lot in, in newspaper rewrite, which is now a highly automated process. And so what you're really looking for are the verbs, the adjectives, and, right. and the, the stock name or symbol. Symbols are great. 
But uh, again, you know, we we have issues there because we're still, you know, uh, some some people will put a symbol in with a caret sign in front of it uh, for an index, and other people put it in parentheses, and some websites put it in brackets, and and other times that when when you're looking at it down at the code level on a web page, it it may just mean something in JavaScript someplace. So it, it, it's a non-trivial problem to get all this reading of web pages done. But uh, I, I think that by focusing uh, on the financial websites, rather than trying to read lots of posts in financial forums, which get way off topic and are, are much, much noisier than the uh, I would call it the mainstream press coverage. So, so right. that's like one part. And th- and then you 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 talked about the uh, the psychology of it. And you know the big question is that replicatable? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research in advertising that goes to point, and that and that's the word frequency or the. Uh, Ad frequency studies. Uh, if you hear it one time, you won't believe it. If you hear it two times, maybe. If you hear it third time, and it's got a good positioning statement behind it, uh, and, and and a unique selling proposition, then you know uh, trout and rice marketing kind of stuff. It becomes front of consciousness. Uh, a good example on this one is there was a little concept couple of years ago about the Jewish religious holiday Shemitah, which happens on <laughs> September. You know where I'm going, right? I'm, I, I've been, I've actually just registered the domain um, with that very name, actually, for a no, project. Get out of yes. here, really? Yes, Cause, yes, Because yes. you see the data. Well, yeah. okay, let me use a different one. So there's another meme out there that doesn't no, come let's, up let's go with this different. example. This is going to be the launch of a microsite, by the way. So please, let's go with this yeah. example. Okay. Uh, so, yes, Shemitah was a significant date on a number of occasions. But uh, seven years ago, for example, yes, uh, Shemitah was a significant date. In 2009, it was a significant... Was it 2009? Yeah, 2009. 2008, oh, I 2008, believe. it was a significant yeah. date. That's September something, 2008. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then uh, before that, uh, let's see, 2001, you bet it was a significant date. But right. here's the problem. The problem is, if you go back seven years prior to that, what mm-hmm. was the significant event? Here's the problem with things like Shemitah, uh, things like average annual high, and a whole bunch of other market metrics. There's a right. dandy, and it's an old school book, and it's about the human perception problem. And this book I'm thinking of, uh, going from memory here, the title is How We Know What Isn't So. Mm-hmm. And bas- and basically, we're programmed uh, genetically from a million years ago to recognize patterns. The problem is that many times what we think are patterns, and if you get three Shemitahs, hey, dude, I'm with you, you know. Uh, <laughs> but but I'm I'm looking at Shemitah as being probably the panic low at. 1812 or 1740 and there's other people that are going oh my god the world's going to end but see that's where we will know in a couple of weeks maybe I could be the third uh, uh, interview on this one 
Uh, we'll know <laughs> in, in several weeks once we get Pashmita and the Fed meeting, because my speculation, and we can get into this in the next interview too, is that I think what will probably happen if the Fed raises rates, the market won't crash. Shmita's going to be wrong, or like many other cycles, it will invert. And when it inverts, the market's going to go to 25,000 or 30,000 on the Dow, just like it did uh, in 1929. And that's why I go back so long in the long wave of economics. You know what? On this whole topic here of Shemita, I'm going to say this, is that first off, like, yes, we agree. There's a whole... There's almost a numerology component to all of this for for the audience that's listening. But what makes it very interesting is the fact of the catalyst of the event itself, which goes back all the way to biblical texts about the cleansing of of debt, a refresh cycle to some shape or form. Ah, Leviticus, you bet. Yes, yes, yes. So that's kind of interesting. It's kind of fun. I would say, though, is that that definition is very ambiguous. Even yeah, that definition, it, it, it means pre or post Shemitah. And if it happens within close proximity, which is very ambiguous, then you might consider that a check mark. So in this case, let's, let's just say <laughs> we're already heading towards this three-peat scenario. I would say that the merit of even the, I guess, the conversation of Shemitah within the lexicon right now is sufficient enough and is conf- having a confluence with this equity market decline to some extent. You could argue people are front-running it to some extent. And yeah. th- there you go. That's There's a nice... Okay, and, and, and I'll leave you one to think about. And okay. the one to think about is I have good statistical data going back a long, 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 long ways that says that market declines hit their maximum 55 days after the high. Now, you tell me from the Fed meeting date where we were 55 days earlier and also look at moon cycles. I'm sure you're aware of Steve Pute's work on uh, the tendency of crashes to happen around uh, new moons. Uh, and also, <laughs> don't forget, Shemitah is primarily a lunar calendar. Uh, I have some friends who have written a book about, you know, how Sabbath was lost. And, and right. that gets us into a huge discussion. But at the end of the day, price is still king. And the analysis of price is the most important thing. Um, you can typically have a bifurcation between value and price. But um, at the end of the day, what you are trading or investing in is actually price, believe it or not. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 